Hey y'all, you're tuned in for another episode of Getting to the Root of It with Venus Roots. And we are in the midst of Virgo season. And I know that that's affecting all of us. And today's guest is a multidisciplinary artist and writer and many things in between. And I'm so excited to have you on the show today, Fariha. Welcome. Thank you so much. I'm really happy to be here. Yeah, so let's let's get right into it. Um, Fariha, for folks who might not be familiar with you and your work, who is Fariha and what are sort of the values that anchor your work and the work that you've been doing and offering folks? Um, okay, so yeah, I'm a multidisciplinary artist. I think I like that more than just a writer because that, I don't know, doesn't really, I'm sure you feel this in your own life, just limitations aren't always helpful. And if you're like, expansive and you see your sole purpose as being very expansive, then it's kind of cool to do whatever draws something out of you. Mm -hmm. That's sort of my goal in life with my work is to be drawn out. Um, there's church bells. I wonder if you hear them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then there's church bells. Um, but yeah, like just to be really truthful and honest and have integrity. And that's not always easy. It's not something that I'm like saying I'm the master of yet, but it's, they're, they're definitely intentions that I put into my work. And I, I no matter what I'm writing about, I want it to be deeply honest um, because that's really important for me as an artist and as, a person who consumes a lot of art or just lives like I think our society has a lot of dishonesty and capitalism is dishonesty, white supremacy is, is dishonesty, patriarchy is dishonesty. They're dishonest constructions and that's why we're suffering mm -hmm. um, because, you know, like the exchange isn't fair. And like, you know, I've been thinking a lot about apocalypse. I'm jumping all over the place, but like, I am thinking so much about apocalypse. I'm revisiting Parable of the Sower. So I'm like, you know, and I live in Miami and I think, you know, climate crisis is coming for all of us and crisis, we're, we're all swimming in it, but oof, it feels like the belly of the beast here sometimes. So yeah. always thinking about it. We knew what she was doing. And I really like that book is so, is so, is such a parable, you know, and it's such a, it's, she really was ahead of her time. And and I think that, you know, as much as I'm thinking of apocalypse, I'm thinking of futurity, as you are probably, as many of us are, we're thinking about what does the future look like? Well, we want a black and brown future. We want a just future. We want mm -hmm. evolved systems that aren't working for us um, collectively. Um, and so, yeah, I'm somebody who is very much human as well. Like, that's like very much my experience as a as a person, as who I am. Um, I I learn a lot from my human experience. Yeah, I love that you frame that. I feel like sometimes, and I mean, certain bodies have to um, navigate the fight for humanness um, and have been having to do so for such a long time that I think there's such a a pleasure and a joy in just being able to claim humanness, that that is the experience that we are in. Um, so I just, you know, first off, thank you for sending the book early. It was such a treat and I'm so happy we're gonna get 
to talk about, you know, kind of like your debut novel, Like a Bird. And I, you know, I'll be totally transparent. I hadn't read fiction in like a whole little minute. I feel like my Gemini ass just drowns itself in theory and like, you know, all the spirals that come with it. And it was, it was such a joy. I mean, I was rooting for Ty the whole time. I was like, come on. <laughs> it was such a story of survival. And I think there's so many themes interwoven into the story. Um, but talk to me a little bit about putting it all together. I know I've read and heard that it's been many, many years, almost all your, your whole life in the making. But talk to me a little bit about the process of putting and writing like a bird together and bringing it to life. Um, yeah, you know, it took a lot of, today was the first time where, you know, I've been doing interviews like this, it's like a press season right now. And it's really fun because each time I get to talk about the book and like process a different part of it, chew another part of it, maybe. Um, I don't think until today I'd really like sat down and been like, I've been working on this for 18 years. And that's like, that's huge. Like if this book flops and like, you know, never, nobody reads it. And like, everybody thinks it's a, crit it's a critical failure. All of those things, all of the worst nightmares that you have when you're putting something out. You know, if that's the case, I still wrote it for 18 years. You know, like I still like committed to something for 18 years. And I think that like the same ways in which like, you know, I do, would never be audacious enough to think that I'm a genius. I don't think I'm anywhere near that. But like, I do respect people that uh, that like put a lot of time and energy into something. And like, it's interesting to like, even though I don't think of myself as like somebody who's achieved a huge thing to like actually acknowledge like, wow, like the amount that I shifted and changed and my political education. I mean, I was always quite intelligent and like, uh aware of life aware of white supremacy even like those things were at the initiation of this book really apparent you know it's a, a, it's about biraciality but it's also about like more than anything like how systems fail you and you know that is, is something that constantly happens to this person um who in a lot of different ways is also privileged and so like those things I really wanted to explore because their privilege is so nuanced. Um, you know, like we're finally having like appropriate conversations about class and how class and race and so many different like small factors, you know, sexuality, gender, these things are all contribute to like the, the person that you are, but it also contributes deeply to the experience that you have being human. And so like, those things I think I really I really like playing with because they're not as simple as we'd like them to be. Um, and like that, the South Asian identity, I think is like so abstracted in so many ways for so many different reasons. And like really trying to flesh Tay out and like her experience, but also um, this very like specific experience of being South Asian, half white, half Jewish growing up in America, having a, having two parents that hate themselves and like what that mm. does to you. Um, that rooted, like that, that is like such a, it's such a specificity and like my parents hate themselves. You know, well, how did I expect to ever like be healthy? 
you know, mm. I was never around healthy identity. I never understood what it actually meant to love yourself, you know? So like on top of everything that I experienced in my life, I had this other layer that I had to work through, which is like, I sincerely felt like a piece of shit my whole life just by virtue of picking up on everything that I was being given by my parents. And I think that's very much like Talia and I are very similar in that sense where like, especially when you're an emotionally susceptible person and you can feel things beyond understanding and language, it's very tough to then like untether yourself from those things. You know, how are you, you know, like I, I'm really curious about like how psychicness works and like why does it make so much sense and how does it happen? Mm -hmm. These are like all factors in my myself that I put into Talia, and those things are I think really necessary for us to start talking about. Yeah, it was. I mean, first off, I I finished the book I think in like three days, and because I was I was just hooked. I. I I was, like I said, I was rooting for her the whole time. And I think for me, being in a place like Miami, that although it's, you know, considered this like big metropolis, um, there are certain identities that are not really like centered or really like valued in a broader sense here. Mm -hmm. And I think I think an identity, uh, you know, this like South Asian identity, um, you know, she's, she's talking about Muslim folks, Hindu folks, it's something that, you know, it's not like, Miami's not like a place like New York, and it's not like where, you know, those are identities that are not centered here. Mm -hmm. And like, for me, it was kind of like, I just felt really grateful to be able to mm -hmm. learn about the parallels and the nuance and also the specifics mm -hmm. of how colonized people mm -hmm. in different contexts also share and hold so many pain. And that was just like a very, yeah, it was a very interesting experience for me because I'm like, sheesh, that sounds like my parents. Mm -hmm. And then there was some, you know, there were some elements where, yeah, it was very specific. And I'm like, oh, wow. Like, mm -hmm. And yeah, that was one of the elements that I really enjoyed. Um, and I think, you know, something I was curious for you is, you know, you identifying as a person that's like, very emotionally susceptible to the environment, which is completely a thing and very normal. Um, but it's something that I actually struggle with. I don't identify that way, right? I think my tendencies always rationalize, intellectualize emotions, and it's my own like survival, you know, surviving mechanism. And what I do admire is like, I feel like all of your writing is very raw in its offering of pain and navigating trauma. And, you know, and not just, you know, not just with the book of Like a Bird, but also thinking of the newsletters that you write mm -hmm. books. And I'm curious for you, like what, how, how are you swimming in those waters, right? Where it is painful. Like, I think quite frankly, you write about a lot of painful, stories and painful moments um that yeah how do you sort of protect yourself in that is it a cathartic you know is it just simply cathartic do you feel you just have a responsibility to kind of offer folks a place of like shared understanding and yeah like I'm just curious it's a lot yeah I mean also I loved your point about the 
the similarities between the relationships and, and life lives of colonized colonized folks, um, folks that have experienced um, extreme uh, the extreme forms of white supremacy, and I think there are such similarities between um, being colonized that I don't think that we are fully aware of yet in the U.S. Like it's it's very there's very limited language and there's very um, flattened ideas. You know, there's this incredible book by my friend Vivek Bald who is an MIT professor and wrote this book called Bengali Harlem, which he's now trying to make into a doc, or he is making into a documentary series. And it's basically about um, Bangladeshi peddlers that came, Bangladeshi Pakistani peddlers that came in the 18th century and then married mainly black women and subsumed into black culture. Mm. And the legacies and histories of a lot of these folks and like, you know, um, there is like such an enmeshing in America, especially across racialized people. And the distinction of, uh, I don't know, I guess like the, the conflict or the divide in uh, experience really was orchestrated by white supremacy in 1965. You know, it was right as the, as the civil rights movement was taking off. and there was um before 1965 there were incredible ra- incredibly racist laws that wouldn't allow like anybody who's not who's asian to enter america i think it was like a hundred people a year were allowed in it was the chinese exclusionary act and in 1965 they changed it so they were now allowing a lot of, you know asian people into the united states which then created the like the minority um, the model minority myth and this idea of like, you know, you divide black people and non-black people of color and you're able to then like further white supremacy and it's all interlinked. And that's something that's like so important for us to acknowledge, like how, you know, we have really been, um, disconnected because we'd be too radical a front if we work together. You know, it's like, I think often about how Fred Hampton was murdered and 21, you know, he was a 21 year old and he was executed by the state. And that's because he was so powerful because he understood he was a communist. He understood that true radicality, true, like really fighting the system is working together. And Talia is really sort of reckoning with those things, you know, in a very like small, but um, I think very revolutionary way, like her relationship with Kat makes her question race and all of these things that she's always known. You know, a lot of the time it is the confrontation of blackness, like understanding how black folks have been, how anti-blackness is like proliferated, by all non-Black people, you know, when you acknowledge that and when you can really see that and how historically that's worked. And sometimes it just happens purely through interaction or interface. Um, those things are so powerful, uh, a shift in a person. 
And I really, really wanted that to be really evident in her life and her evolution as a person, because those things are all interconnected. Like my fight for black liberation is the same as my fight for class liberation. You know, those things are like deeply interlinked and that's why it's so powerful. That's why we see it everywhere, you know, globally, because those things need each other to survive. So it's like, yeah, I mean, in some baby way, like a bird kind of fits into all of that, like a jigsaw puzzle. But like, I'm really proud. I'm not all the time proud because it's really hard to be proud about work, I think, for me. But I am I am really proud that I, I worked this hard to make something, I think, very genuine happen. Yeah. You should be proud. I know. Yeah. I think, are, are you a Capricorn? Yes. I'm <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. Y'all, you know, y'all got a hard time on that. And I know. Really sometimes good. it lends itself to really amazing work. And then sometimes it could just be very self-deprecating. So <laughs> you should be proud. It, it's, it is a beautiful story. And, and I love how you contextualize it to these broader systems and kind of all the ways and that they are embellished with one another in very painful, violent mm -hmm. ways. Um, and yeah, oof, we could talk, you know, that's a whole yeah. other conversation. Yeah. Did I answer your question? Maybe not. Well, well, I mean, you know, it doesn't, it's always just conversation. I mean, I, I am curious, you know, kind of being the person that you are, where you're like, yo, I hold all these emotions and I feel them fully. And I'm always in the ocean of emotions how how kind of yeah how do you protect yourself when you're yeah offering offering writing that is experience you know kind of walking folks through really painful stories and painful memories and kind of a longing of self you learn how to surf you mm -hmm. learn how to surf honestly like i love going deep i like i it's life-giving to me i couldn't do it any other way I don't have the ability to. It makes me very uncomfortable to have like small talk or like I have to all the time just go there. And that's why a lot of people I don't think can be around me. I'm very intense and like I don't mean to be or I don't like ah, my headphone. Um, I don't like, you know, I'm also a jokester and a clown, you know, like I, those things I think are really important to balance. But like I've always been really intense and and I think that the people in my life are actually like really like that about me like you know Ziba and I have been friends for like 11 years and in the early stage of, stages of our relationship I feel like she was just like you're so intense and now I feel like we're like we totally get it in each other and sometimes you just have to like you like shift with a person and like I see everything as energy. Everything is energy. And so it's really learning how to be a magician. Like how do you learn how to like do that, you know, like alchemize and play and it's all sorcery and all of us have access to that. You know, like my ex practice Yoruba, I learned a lot about Yoruba through him. And like being able to understand just like the ways in which so many mythologies and spiritual practices are literally giving you need to be extra like human and to like do to make use of your human power. Yeah. And 
you know, like capitalism and colonialism has robbed us of so much. But one of the most egregious things it's robbed us of is our own agency over our own fucking bodies and our own minds. And the, the fact that I can still, you know, I mean, this is a product of capitalism, but also the fact that I'm, I'm a Capricorn, the fact that I can't even just sit with this, this like feet that I can't even sit with just like, I did that, um, is frustrating. And I think that we are all bound by so many things, fear that all stems from things that we were fed as children to a certain degree, or like just being, you know, in society. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, that really resonates. I think something that I'm constantly grappling with is trying to tease out the practices that are ancestral, that are sacred, um, kind of like the lineage that I come from, but while also inviting the nuance and the contradictions of the pain that a lot of those lineages mm. have carried on and perpetuated and validated. Um, you know, I remember being much younger when I read Bell Hooks All About Love and how she talks about how you know, your family is sort of your first teacher of love. And then, you know, earlier when you said, you know, if you don't have that, the ways in which it, we carry that in our bodies and in our hearts, it's it's really difficult. And I think it's it's challenging, you know, for me now being older, try, you know, having the language, having the historical context, stepping into my agency to kind of like, break those things apart, kind of the feelings it brings up towards my parents, my family, and they're very complicated. They're mm -hmm. not, they don't exist mm -hmm. in this binary. They're not linear. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think sometimes it, like you don't want to say that because, you know, if you're this black person or if you're a brown person or you're an immigrant or you're in this group, you don't want to offer critique that can also invalidate the, you know, the expansive nature of our communities, the resilience and all the beauty. Um, you know, we just don't get offered nuance. We don't get mm -hmm. offered entry points of like complication. Mm -hmm. But I'm curious for you, you know, in this era of like, where everything is being tokenized and commodified for profit, including identity, kind of how you are challenging or navigating yeah, not being tokenized into like, oh, the, the radical queer Muslim. Yeah. Um, how, how does that show up for you? It's such a good question. I think that, yeah, I mean, the more that you just, I mean, you don't owe anybody. I'm sure you feel this way. You don't owe anybody anything, you know, but people will demand so much of you, at, especially at a certain point when you're like, recognizable and people assume you have power that's the really funny part it's like they assume you have any power in your life and let you you know like or they assume that you're rich and like that you're like i mean when i started two brown girls somebody accused me of like sitting on a throne of money and i was like literally where where are you getting this information from like i just i you know and people the assumptions are really hard and like I think that I still struggle with being seen, even though I want to be seen so much. And that feeds into the critique. Um, 
you know, like even the character of Simon and like a bird, like the fact that he's half Indian, I don't, I was talking about this earlier with somebody else, like you don't really see that dimensionality of like the people that generally rape you or abuse you are are people you know. Mm. That's like the really hard reality of these things. Mm. And there's so much shaming and there's so much just silencing. And, you know, I think of the bromides that I was raised on by my mother and this like full conception that she seemed to have that women deserved everything bad that happened to them. And I was just told that by like just virtue of being her daughter and seeing the way that she talked about women. And I don't blame her at all. Like I think that despite her, what her and I have that's very complicated, I know that she is a construction of the abuse that she's experienced and the culture that she was raised in. And um, and the the sad reality of patriarchy and how much that has damaged all of our communities, mm-hmm. um, because it is oftentimes that yeah the people that really hurt you are the people that know you the most or the closest to you and can groom you and can can just like do things to you with allowance. Um, And that I think is a really scary thing to talk about because is everything that you're saying, you don't want to, you don't want to expose or like feed into stereotypes or like, Mm -hmm. you know, obviously you want there to be some, some kind of, of like complexity attached to those conversations, but there rarely are. And that's why like conversations like these are so important to me as an artist, because there has to be platforms where I'm talking honestly, and I'm hopefully talking honestly all the time, but the things are being redacted. And like, you know, if I can just have an honest conversation on a podcast about like, yo, it's your own community. Like it's people that you wouldn't expect that you're, you're protecting, that you're, you're, enforcing their silence onto you um my body was surveilled i don't i didn't my body's still surveilled and i am constantly reckoning with that um and that is something that is a community effort to shift and change how do we interact with women and femme folks and non-binary folks like this is this is it you know trans women of color is still the most murdered group of people in North America as our Aboriginal women. These are these are realities that we have to face. And yeah, we all have to do that. Mm-hmm. Ooh, right, that no, felt that. I mean, you know, and I really appreciate you saying or kind of inviting this idea of, of forgiveness and yeah you know, that's so necessary in our communities. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's all about complicating it just a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, as someone who's an abolitionist, it's like my one of the values that roots me in that belief and in that pursuit is the idea that I know our folks can transform and that I also understand from both a very personal level and just historically that, you know, like you were saying, the folks who hurt us, you know, would be your own people. 
And in that same way, we also have a special or particular ability to transform those conditions, to mm-hmm. start shifting what those relationships mm-hmm. allow mm-hmm. and what those relationships consist of. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I, I'm always struggling, like, do we keep this like an intro communal, intro racial <laughs> discussion? Because you don't want certain things to be in the hands of people who will use it to, you know, excuse X, Y, and Z, as we know. Um, And yeah, I think it's just, it's such a weird time. It is such a strange time where at this, in in between all of this, like our trauma is being commodified. Mm -hmm. Blackness is being commodified. And yeah, I think it's, you know, the mourning and grieving that comes with that is, is ongoing. And kind of just bringing back this point of how do we fight the the commodification monster that is that capitalism necessitates, especially as you know you said like people who might have some visibility and people be assuming all types of shit. We know that, but even just at an at an internal level, um, mm-hmm. I think what I'll share to be more specific is. You know, sometimes I'm like, do I want to share this sort, this a caption where I'm talking about my trauma mm-hmm. and the hardship and mm-hmm. this and the pain mm-hmm. and that? Because yes, I need to, I need to be able to put that out. But also, I think there's a subconscious reward tick where mm-hmm. I know that that shit hits. You know, people and I'm constantly trying to like have a better assessment of what is cathartic and what is necessary and what is healing and what puts me in like the hamster wheel of kind of commodifying my own trauma and my own pain Mm -hmm. or visibility for whatever it might be. And, you know, it's not as easy as that. Sometimes you're, you know, you're caught up in the mess. But yeah, I'm curious if that resonates with you at all. I've been writing about trauma for like six years now. And I think I was definitely feeling like that. And there was like a burnout in the beginning and like, yeah, maybe a tendency or an over tendency to be too open, but that's also who I am all the time. Like I am so open in a way that frustrates me because I know that in the wrong hands, it is misused and it regularly is. But I think that I'm getting better at one, protecting myself and two, telling those things specifically you know, not sharing everything, not oversharing everything, but acknowledging when something is useful, you know, to, I'm ruled by Saturn. So like, I need use as a, as a reason, you know, like, and it makes me a great editor because I'm just like, I will pull it back for myself. And I think it totally makes sense that if you are gaining traction or an audience or even just like compassion, Because for me, I think like compassion is the biggest one. That's why I started writing about some things that I was writing about in the first place. I realized that a lot of people were applying certain ideas about who they thought I was and not in a reaction, but in a way of like, kind of, I guess, like confronting myself and being like, oh, no, like, you know, just like recognizing that abuse has completely made my foundation rotten so like I am there's so much about me that I should be proud of and like blah, like have a healthy self-esteem and I just don't and so 
yeah, like, I don't know. I think I'm like losing the thread again, but like, <laughs> what did you ask again? I'm like, I'm trying to no, I mean, I mean, I think that's like this really, uh, it just feels so real. I just was in a conversation with Mimi Zhu and they were sharing with me how, you know, we're talking about like social media and like kind of a, the addiction and the validation and the compassion and the sort of community and, and the sense of belonging that we're kind of always in pursuit of. And they were sharing with me how like studies show that for folks who have experienced a lot of trauma, things like social media validation become so addictive because it is these small bits of reward Exactly. And they're so it's such a quick turnaround. And I've just been sitting with that since our conversation, trying to like kind of unpack my own relationship to to yeah, why am I oversharing so much? Like I don't even be knowing these people. And you know, am I am I doing this for compassion and for a sense of belonging and also to be truthful? Mm -hmm. um, or, you know, the other things, the yeah. other more complicated. Yeah, and that's how you protect yourself. Like mm -hmm. that becomes your protecting protective model. If you are doing it for the first reasons, for the former reasons, then do it. Because that means that you're gaining. So there's like a, you know, like again, an energetic like balance because you're gaining something out of the situation that's like holistic as opposed to like a like that is not holistic and you're, you know, you're craving that kind of attention. Yeah, it's like, I think that that's become my my like litmus test for what I share and what I don't share. Like, why am I doing this? It's a great question. It's an important question in the line of work that we're doing. Yeah, agreed. I feel like I also am just asking myself more, just like be honest, putting the mirror up and, you know, it's like you ain't gotta lie to yourself. And mm -hmm. sometimes it's not the easiest answer, you know, mm -hmm. and we're always caught up in the in-betweens, but, yeah, I think something I really wanted to kind of discuss with you was this, something that I don't necessarily think is so much of a contradiction, um, but for I think a lot of the mainstream folks, this idea and these identities that you occupy so proudly being a queer Muslim, to so many people, like to so many like white liberals, it's like, what? <laughs> you know, it's like, what do you mean? Um, and I, many of my friends and people I love and share community with is like that I don't think is a strange thing at all but I'm curious for you kind of like what do what are those intersecting interwoven identities for you in your day-to-day -day? yeah I mean I know so many queer Muslims I'm dating queer Muslim girlfriends queer Muslim you know like it's I think that yeah, I mean, and we've always been here. It's not like a Western conception. You know, a lot of a lot of people will tell you certain things about how you should be, especially conservative parents or family. You know, like I've been told to go to hell plenty of times, or I've been told that I will go to hell, not go to hell, that I will go to hell. And I mean, those things are not divine or divinity to me. So I guess like to a certain degree, I've had to disassociate from those kinds of things because if your understanding of faith is rooted in like hellfire, 
I don't know where there's room for mercy and love and compassion. And those are three things that are like tethered to the Muslim identity. You know, like, you know, when you say, Bismillah uh, Rahman uh, Rahim, you're saying God is the most gracious and the most merciful. I mean, those are literally, that's like the transliteration, or sorry, the translation, not the transliteration, the translation from Arabic to English. And so it's like, to me, being queer or hetero or being cis or trans, like these are your human experiences that are not about how godly you are or you're not, you know, like, I, I just wrote my last newsletter about sex and Islam. And one of the reasons I really wanted to write about it was because of this contradiction that you see within spaces of faith. And I'll specifically talk about within Islam, where it's not as if Islam isn't obsessed with sex because it is, but it's about the morality of a woman as opposed to what, how is this like a, a, a an interaction between two people, you know, or, you know, how many, however many people, why are, why isn't it like about, you know, the people involved and like, why are we talking about, why are we trying to create distinctions in sexuality and sex when like, yeah, it's only ever, the emphasis is only ever put on the woman and the way that she should interact. And it's just all patriarchal structures that, all faiths and all systems apply are uh, implicit, um, complicit, and implicitly like you know have have learned how to like put this into their systems. It's like that's how you that's how you keep people down. You ensure that they're powerless and that it's a game they'll never win. And uh, you know. That's how I feel like it sometimes felt when I was younger, like my body was so weaponized against me. And it's really unfortunate because it's not the truth. And so to me, as an adult, as a queer person, as a person living a queer life, I think it's really important to acknowledge that God's love and mercy is the only thing that I'm pursuing. And of course, people are going to tell you whatever they fucking think and want to say to you. But like, if somebody is harping on about who I'm having sex with or who I love, that's not a godly person to me. So I think I've been able to really, especially in my own life with my spiritual connection to the divine, which is extremely strong, I would say, um, mashallah. But I I have like spent so many years being uh, in deep communion with God. So like, I just think that those things don't really affect me much anymore. And if you're pursuing love and compassion with your heart, then you will have love and compassion for anybody who comes into your life. And that's just just it. Mm -hmm. That is just it. And that's that on that, truly. (laughs) I think just to switch gears as we like wrap up this beautiful conversation of complicated truths, but truths nonetheless, um, I'm really excited to hear kind of 
what are the seeds of joy um, mm. and of hope um, that you're sort of sowing in this moment in these times of heightened uncertainty, heightened crisis, heightened despair? Yeah, I mean, abolition. Mm. Abolition was like a big one for me this year. I think the fact that we can believe in abolition in the future that serves abolitionist practices, that we can uh, one day be gone with jails, hopefully borders as well, those things are worth fighting for. And they, you know, I think a lot of people that are cynical are comfortable with these truths and, 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 and the possibility. Let's not even call them truths, let's call them possibilities. To me, now, especially in this like convergence of a moment, is when you can shift and when you evolve and when you when you can like push the the gears of the planet into something else. Um, a pandemic, of course, makes sense when you have um, insufferable capitalism. There's no other option. I didn't know what I don't know what they thought they would get out of this. Um, you know, and, and I think that like with the collapse of capitalism, which is coming, and with you know the collapse of the United States Empire, which is coming, um, there's gonna have to be basically um, a restructuring. And that's where we're currently at. We, we are currently, you know, holistically thinking about abolition. And that to me is completely a seed that I'm sowing in my own life. And I think just like complete, full care of myself and my community. So I can help be one of the torchbearers that brings the us into the next age age of Aquarius because it's coming the time's coming we have to we have to shift yes transformation is transformation yeah is here and it is it is yeah. invites transformation crisis invites opportunity and I mean now's the time either you know either our world is coming or they'll bring us down with them. And I think, you know, I'm hopeful for the former. And I just want to thank you, Fariha, so much for your words, your work, taking the time, being like on the whole other side of the world, taking the time to talk with me. And I'm really, you know, I think when I have conversations like this, like my existential dread kind of just slows down a little bit. And for that, I'm grateful and I'm appreciative. So thank you so much for today and thank you for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me, babe.